This house, nor I as a brother herein, can be at peace until the truth is known. This is no ordinary death, and I shall do what I can to uncover the guilty. Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world in both historical fiction and medieval-inspired fantasy. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ipdecker, and I'm doing this podcast because I'm a medieval historian, and when I teach, I see firsthand how medieval media affects students' perceptions of the medieval world. Today I have with me a guest, Abby Agresta. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I am Abigail Agresta. I am also a medieval historian, and let's see, I, and I came into medieval history through my love of medieval, various medieval pop culture things, so yeah. Also a very old friend of Sarah's. Yes, so including this particular piece of pop culture that we are talking about today, right? Yeah, this is one of the reasons that my life worked out the way it did. Yeah. So uh, today we are talking about the TV show Cadfell, which was a, I should have wrote this down, a BBC thing, I assume. Um, I, I'm not sure, actually. It's is definitely it, British. Public, yeah, public television of some kind, yeah. I think aired on PBS in the United States, though. Yeah, so uh, aired um, originally from 1994 to 1998. I have not seen this until yesterday, or I guess two days ago at this point, but it was a lot of fun. So it stars Derek Jacobi as the monk Cadfael, who I know entirely from I, Claudius, really. Um, He's also been in a lot of other random... He was in um, Gosford Park as somebody's That's right, yeah. It's like if you see British television for long enough, he's in it. In like almost everything at some point, as, yeah. as they do. Which is true of a lot of people in this show, that a number of them are just people that I'm pretty sure if I spent a while digging, I would see that a number of them I had seen in one episode of another British TV show. Yeah, that, that is their level of fame. Yeah, the uh, people that I actually uh, wrote brief notes about is, so there's a kind of character who's a sheriff, uh, Hugh Berenger. They kind of switch hues between seasons. But Sean Pertwee, who is the Hugh in season one. And absolutely the best Hugh in every possible way. It all goes downhill after him. I only saw season two, but that was definitely at least a worse Hugh. Oh, oh the, third, the third one's even worse. It was it's tragic. Just increasing um, decline of Hughes. Yeah. But he apparently is now a lot older and playing Alfred in ba- in uh, in Gotham. One of the tragedies, I think, of maybe watching something that was only medium popular in the early 90s is that there aren't a lot of success stories among... I mean, everybody is much older and yeah. past their prime. The apparently greatest success story is uh, Mark Turnock, who plays Brother Oswin, who is Cadfael's novice buddy, has is known primarily for having spent the last 30 years uh, acting in a British soap opera called Emmerdale, which I have never heard of, but it seems like there is a lot happening on it. So, good for him. Yeah, so I'm glad that he's got a job. I mean, if his personality is anything like his personality on the show. He is a charming person who deserves the best. Exactly. So, you know, good for him. So with that, uh, we're going to move into our first section, the enumeratio section, in which we have a recap, kind of first a brief recap, and then go into some discussion 
of the TV show and specifically the episodes that we watched. So Cadfael, for those not familiar with it, is a mystery series set in 12th century England in which Cadfael, a Benedictine monk who is at the abbey in Shrewsbury, both heals and solves crimes primarily due to his knowledge of Eastern medicine and herbs, as well as what I would describe as a kind of healthy dose of common sense. There is a lot of interest in kind of forensic evidence. Are we getting any deeper into Cadfael's backstory at this point, or are we going to say we'll get, get to that? In uh, so we can actually kind of go ahead and start getting into that now, because it does start to come up in the uh, first episode we watched, which was One Corpse Too Many. So that's the first episode of the show. It's the only one that actually locates us uh, very specifically at a time, as well as a place that identifies it as taking place in Shrewsbury in 1138. Yeah. So all of these are based on novels, um, on mystery novels, we should also say. Yes, um, which I have not read. And which we aren't, re- and I haven't read since I was 10, so we're not really going to be getting into those, but um, that is also a fact. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it is worth knowing that there are books, and um, that actually I will say also from a couple of Wikipedia summaries I looked at, it looks like the show is at least relatively close to the books it is. for the episodes um, we watched. I, at one time in my in my youth, I read both the books and watched the shows, and the books tend to be more detailed, especially in terms of the sort of ongoing drama of the life of Cadfile and Hugh Barringer. But they're basically similar, and it's just that there are actually more books than it were uh-huh. made into TV shows. Um, and so One Corpse Too Many is was the second book that was written, but the first that was made into a, a show. Right. So um, uh, it's Shrewsbury 1138, and the kind of basic plot is that Cadfael is uh, assigned, or the Abbey in general, and Cadfael is one of the people who kind of take charge, uh, is assigned to administer the burial of a garrison of 94 men who were executed after uh, King Stephen, who was in the midst of a civil war, kind of took over after there was a siege of Shrewsbury, and he won, and now and then executed the entire garrison in support of his uh, contender for the throne, uh, Queen, or I guess Empress Maud, or Matilda. And then it turns out that there are supposed to be 94 men, and there are actually 95. So at this point, it probably is a good idea to talk a little bit about Cadfael's backstory, which we start to get at this point. Yeah, so Cadfael, as his name would suggest, is originally Welsh. Shrewsbury is on the Severn River. It's right on the border between England and Wales, which at that point were separate countries. England had not actually taken over Wales. Um, So Cadfael's Welsh. Um, We learn fairly quickly in the episode um, that in his youth, um, he was part of the First Crusade. Um, He is of not particularly noble birth, but he was sort of a common soldier in the First Crusade. Um, He went over there when he was young. He stayed over there for some, not, I think, not specified until later, or sort of always a little bit vague amount of time um, until he was probably middle-aged fighting for various people. Um, He comes back, um, and in his middle age um, becomes a monk. So his Eastern adventures are the source of his extremely effective, I mean, ridiculously effective (laughs) medical knowledge. So there's this kind of, you know, he has learned the Eastern arts sort of thing going on. But, and it is also apparently his worldly experience is, is the reason why he doesn't seem to be, he doesn't seem to suffer from basically any prejudices or any kind of lack of perspective that one might ascribe to the Middle Ages and that everyone and a medieval else monk, in perhaps, the show, in particular, basically. Yeah. yeah, so he is, he is depicted as being, as believing very strongly in God, but that doesn't, that doesn't really lead him to hold any opinions that would be out of place in the early 1990s. Right, so despite him being a monk in some ways that are convincing and him seeming to take religion seriously, 
he is very much this type of the modern person plopped into the Middle Ages in a lot of ways. The herb knowledge as well, I do just want to note that he can, first of all, heal literally anyone. I mean, there are multiple people who come in, as we'll, as we'll talk about, who come in like with severe stab wounds to the abdomen. In one case, after a severe arrow wound to the abdomen and then subsequently swam around in a pretty filthy looking river for some hours and then like layer and then he just I mean he heals them in a, like a minute with his herbs um, so I mean basically if you're not dead by the time Brother Cadfile gets to you you're fine which is which is not just, how it's just a rule of the anywhere show. in the medieval world no, but I think it is it is following the genre, the rules of the mystery genre rather than the yes. rules of history. And and I think one of the rules of the mystery genre is that the, prote- the detective protagonist is sort of all powerful, yes, um, in very specific ways. And he his superpower is herbs. Basically. Yes, and in general, I would say there's a lot of emphasis on various kinds of forensic evidence that he is able to derive from examining the corpses and the places where the corpses were found or where he ultimately determined they were originally murdered. And herbs also factor in oddly frequently to the forensic evidence. One might not think that you could solve as many murders as he solves based on the plants that were near their bodies in a place in England that probably has basically all the same plants in a relatively small geographical area. Yeah, I think in three out of the four episodes that we watched for this podcast, he pulls a sprig of something out of someone's body identifies it thoughtfully to himself, stores it in his habit for later, and then somehow matches it to, like, the the murderer or the murder scene or something later on. This is, like, a his move. Yeah. So this first episode is, I would say, the one that is definitely the most kind of centered on politics in particular, mm-hmm. with that it begins with this garrison executed by Stephen, and then a lot of it has to do with essentially Stephen, who is actually a character establishing authority in the town. And so it, uh, the person who was murdered was somebody who was a kind of, who was somebody who was a kind of supporter, uh, who was also kind of participating and who had, and who was a supporter of one of the noblemen that escaped from the garrison. So on the rebel side, and well, the Empress Maud's On Maud's side. side. Yeah. And so he's a person who, it turns out that's who the person is that was murdered. And it ultimately turns out that I guess one of the, the noble who had escaped also had this very fancy treasury, which is uh, what the guy was murdered over. The and, other noble yeah. also has a daughter who ends up getting hidden in the monastery. And of course, Cadfile figures out instantaneously that she's actually a girl and no one else does because of his worldly knowledge and everyone else's absurd lack of worldly knowledge. No one else has ever met a girl before. No. Um, (laughs) So, you know, so he is sort of implicated in that because he ends up hiding her. Yeah, it is also kind of funny because from a perspective of me watching this, she is not even slightly passing. No. Um, I mean, she very clearly looks and sounds like a woman. However, the only thing that she seems to do in order to portray herself as male is that she speaks in this very stoic, emotionless way, which I find very funny as a, like, 90s statement on masculinity. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a total 90s statement on masculinity. (laughs) Yeah, so she then also, as it turns out, engaged to a man named Hugh Berenger, who is, I guess at this point, uh, kind of in the process of sorting, sort of switching sides over to Stephen's side. Yeah, so the, this is supposed to be, I think, at a moment in this civil war when 
it is starting to appear, at least to the people in this region, that Stephen is going to win. And so Hugh is one of the people who has maybe not yet quite declared himself, but has had more ties to Empress Maud. And he is first seen pledging himself to Stephen. Stephen is suspicious of this because um, Hugh had basically previously been engaged to this now disguised as a monk girl who was the daughter of the rebel leader. And so Hugh is then told he has to buy his way into Stephen's favor by finding this girl because, you know, she'll be a a valuable bargaining chip. At this point, we are unclear whether Hugh or not Hugh is a good guy. Yeah, and he seems like kind of maybe he's not initially, but then ultimately uh, kind of ends up, uh, I mean, he sort of follows Cadfell around for a while, and they kind of come to some uh, understanding about their kind of mutual, I guess, interest in forensic evidence. I mean, I think there's, the idea is that they're supposed to be very, they're like both very clever. Yes, like he's supposed to be intelligent and kind of has a very similar uh, respect for this kind of evidentiary work. Yeah, I guess. And I think for scheming. I mean, there's, yeah. you know, so so Hugh has basically, by observing Brother Cadfile, figured out all of the things Brother Cadfile is trying to keep hidden, including this wounded guy who got struck by an arrow, and also this girl, and also the treasury, and has developed this scheme whereby he'll let the girl and the guy and the arrow guy go, but keep the treasury, but then... Because Cadfile, the treasury is presumably what Stephen once and would find more useful. Yeah, and then Cadfile is way ahead of him and knows he's going to do that for so- somehow, and so like tricks him into actually like he basically gives him some saddlebags full of rocks and instead of the treasure. So basically they kind of like try to outwit each other and it's like this beautiful sort of detective flirtation moment. Yeah. Um, and then by the end of the episode, Hugh secures the position of under-sheriff of Shropshire. He later on just kind of merges into the sheriff position. Well, and that's not actually explained, but in the books, like, mm-hmm. the previous sheriff dies. And so then he becomes the sort of detective, like, the Lestrade to uh, yeah. Cadfile Sherlock. Yeah, um, and uh, and the way he gets the sheriff position, by the way, uh, is that he and Cadfile kind of more or less together sort of sort out uh, that uh, another man who's a uh, the person who is actually the current deputy sheriff, uh, what's his name, Alan Corsell. Adam Corsell? Adam Corsell. Adam Corsell is uh, actually the killer. Uh, there's a whole thing with, you know, a dagger and uh, uh, Cadbell is able to kind of match the stone to the dagger. And uh, there's like a boy in the kitchen who had the dagger who's then able to say that Corsell is a person who he got the dagger from. But Hugh then fights and defeats him in single combat, um, at which point the uh, Stephen basically says, well, you killed my sheriff, so you get to be the sheriff now. Yeah. And the reason that it goes comes down to trial by combat, which it would not necessarily, is because if the whole story came out, it would potentially like be embarrassing for the very blonde woman with the like very intense like bra situation going on under yes. her medieval outfit who everyone <laughs> in the show loves. Yes, although I feel like she kind of disappears. I feel like oh yeah, well in the books Hugh marries her and she like becomes a hmm. sort of supporting character, but the actress doesn't come back. So this is like yeah, this is the only episode that she gets to be in. Yeah, and it's just like this woman who she seems to have convincingly demonstrated that she's on Stephen's side, despite the fact that her brother is on Maud's side and is one of the people who's now dead. 
everyone just likes her because they think she's pretty. She's very blonde. Very blonde. Anyway, the point is that Hugh opts for trial by combat in order to kind of preserve her honor, which I think is actually like a fairly, I don't know, I don't think it's the worst deployment of trial by combat I've ever seen. No, definitely not. You know, that was, that was allowed at that time. That would have been a thing. Um, yeah. So then, then we have Cadfile and Hugh Beringer established as, you know, partners in solving crime. Yes. So we, uh, we skipped episode two of season one and went directly on to episode three, which is the Leper of St. Giles. And it sets a plot that centers around there's um, a, supposed to be a wedding at the monastery. And so everyone involved in the wedding has just arrived, which is uh, Yvetta, a young noblewoman. And her guardians, uh, Godfrey Picard and his wife Agnes, and her intended, Baron Hewan de Domville, and uh, Hewan's assorted squires. You find out in approximately 3.5 seconds that uh, Yvetta is definitely spending all of her free time making out with one of uh, Hewan's squires, Jocelyn but, Lucy. But you find out even before that that this is all okay because her intended husband, Huon de Domville, is not only old and unattractive, but also terrible. Yeah, which you find out by they're kind of, they're all kind of coming into town. Just a quick note, they are coming into town and are wearing extremely Renaissance hats and a lot of purple. Um, So they're coming from the town of the Renaissance. Yes. um, And so everyone in this party are just are just coming in from the Renaissance to get married at Shrewsbury Abbey, which is cool. Yeah. So these people traveling back in time from the Renaissance and also coming from Italy and also wearing an immense amount of purple and so very clearly apparently rich come across these lepers and uh, kind of, I don't know, I think one of them sort of kicks at them. And then I think one of the nice squires tries to give one of the lepers money. And then they complain that, you know, what, or, no, maybe she, does she give them money? So Huon, basically, you know, yeah. there's this, basically they, they ride it, and which is actually realistic. That if you're coming mm-hmm. into town, you would pass the leper hospital. They were yeah. usually on the roads into town. We can talk about that later. But everybody is coming along and basically it's like a separate, it's to signal to the audience. So all the good people, which is Iveta, the pretty young lady, and the squires, give the, throw the lepers coins. And Iveta's guardians sort of sneer at the lepers, and Huon de Domville like tries to whack one of the lepers with his whip, um, and says something like "filthy lepers." Um, <laughs> yeah, so you know that they're all terrible people because they're not nice to the lepers. So therefore, it is totally fine that she is making out with this young dude instead. The young dude, by the way, is called Jocelyn Lucy. Yeah. So then uh, they are about to be getting married um, in the church. We'll talk about the kind of in the churchness of this in a little bit. But uh, so they're in the church about to get married and uh, Hewan is not in fact there, although he should be there. And it turns out that the reason he is not there is that he is instead very dead. And immediately Jocelyn Lucy is accused of killing him because that is indeed the most obvious possible option. Yeah, also because I think he's just been fired because he was falsely accused of taking a... That, that's a subplot that's not Yeah, so he was kind of falsely accused of theft, like, and then also, like, yelled at him a bunch, and... And also, like, told Brother Cadfile, like, asked Brother Cadfile if there was any poison he could use on this guy. Like, he was not... 
Right. He uh, he is not doing much in advance to um, make himself seem less guilty. His type is very much the hot-headed romantic, I would say. Yeah. So you kind of, like, look at him and you're like, yeah, maybe he could do it. But, of course, But, of course, you can't because you know his heart is pure. Yeah. And also because it's, you know, the trope of your standard mystery series that obviously the person that you first assume is the obvious killer is not actually going to be the killer. Can't possibly be. So it is not, in fact... Jocelyn, there's a lot of kind of Jocelyn escaping and then people chasing him. There During is, which he never takes off his bright purple cloak. Yeah, so he has this bright purple cloak, which you would think it would occur to him that this makes him also, like, A, unable to camouflage in the woods, and B, extremely recognizable. And he does not think to take it off until one of the nice lepers, who goes by the name Lazarus, gives him a leper outfit to wear instead. Um, so yeah, he hides as a leper for a while, and in the meantime, Cadfile is sort of busily trying to sort all of this out, find out the truth. Yeah, this is a very intense forensic evidence episode. I mean, I guess they all are in some ways, but my favorite bit was when Cadfile is like, the person who strangled Huon was wearing a ring on the third finger of his right hand. And then there's like this bit where there's another, the third of the squires who definitely looks like James Franco, who was wearing the, who was wearing a ring, a ring on that finger, you know, quietly moves it to his other finger. Yeah. I mean, they're very, to be a red herring. Yeah. Once, once there's sort of this statement that the murderer was wearing a ring, there are various red herrings about like, oh, who's wearing a ring? Who wasn't? Yeah. Yeah, this is the episode that also has an immense amount of impotency jokes about uh, the late Hewan. So it, it, apparently the late Hewan is supposed to have been, I mean, sterile, sterile to be... or at least known to have slept around a lot without fathering any children, and yes. therefore not expected to father anymore. Yeah, so that people are quite suspicious about that situation. The plot, it turns out, is this extremely convoluted set of assumptions where it turns out the actual killer is his nephew, Simon. Who who, is one of the squires. Yes, who is the third of the squires. And Jocelyn Lucy's best friend. Gasp! Yes, and it turns out he was trying to help Jocelyn the whole time, but he wasn't. Oh no. And so it's that A, he, you know, is the kind of presumptive heir if his uncle doesn't have children, and so he wants to murder his uncle, so he gets the property, but also he wants to both murder his uncle and get his uncle out of the way before the marriage, but also get Jocelyn Lucy essentially out of the way because his assumption that he's just, that kind of Cadfell announces that he's clearly just making it in terms of this whole situation is that while my uncle obviously isn't going to be able to produce children, but she's clearly into Jocelyn. And so obviously they are then going to immediately have an extramarital affair and produce a child, which will then be passed off as my uncle's child. So basically, he's wor- he is worried about the marriage because he thinks it would produce an heir that would disinherit him, but not his uncle's heir, his, like, some, like, weird love child. Which, in retrospect, also seems odd in that it seems like, I mean, one option in addition to murder, if that was the thing that he was worried would happen, would just be to immediately attempt to discredit Iveta in the instance that she actually had a child. And it seems like that might not be that hard, given that the two of them are deeply unsubtle about their relationship. Yeah, but remember, Hiwan always wanted children. Right, so I guess so if we, he, like, le- we learn this was, like, from the, yeah. the key witness for reasons um, turns out to be Hiwan's secret mistress, 
um, who by the time Cadfile discovers her, and he discovers her, of course, by like finding some sprig of a plant and then like following, it's like a whole plant evidence situation happening there. Um, by the time he finds her, she has taken vows as a nun and is like this cool middle-aged nun counterpart to Cadfile, and they have a little bit of a vibe and it's cool. And she's apparently the only person in the universe who actually liked this guy who's dead. Right. It's actually kind of weird in some ways because uh, at the beginning, they're very much trying to pass this guy off as so evil that even if maybe somebody probably shouldn't have murdered him, you also don't really feel very bad for him and kind of think it's maybe a little bit for the best that he got murdered. And she doesn't seem like that sad he's dead, honestly, because they've already broken up, which now that I say that... But like they, so she seems she, very chill about like, both the fact that like they were together for twenty years and then they broke up and then now he's dead and she's going to be a nun. Like she seemed just very relaxed about this whole like, well, yeah. slightly odd situation. I mean, it was like she, yeah. So they, she was kind of with him off and on for for twenty years and then he was going to get married again and then she was like, all right, that's cool. Like I'm also going to move on to my new thing, being a nun. And interestingly, it seems as though he was okay with this, even though he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would, like, respect a woman's right to have her own situation. Of he does not, him. especially. Um, so, like, maybe their relationship was special. And the or question of whether that redeems him, I think, issues. is something that this show is not equipped to handle. But, yeah, and so she, she has, like, gone off to be, like, in her new life as a nun, which is, I think, basically just for, like, the shock value of the mistress turning out to be a nun. Essentially, like, yeah. Like, but... It makes her pretty cool. She actually, actually, that character um, does actually come back in later books. I'm now oh. just remembering, like, because she's That's sort of cool. this local nun person. Does I, she help solve murders? I think she does. Oh. In, like, I, th- I bet that, like, the author was, like, asking, I, I bet the author got leathers being, like, bring back sister whatever. Like, I do not remember her name. Matt, I think, I don't think they t- say her nun name. But she has a nun, and then, like, in the later books, when she comes back, I think she's known only by her nun name. And yeah. And you, you only sort of know by context that it's the same person. Yeah. The other thing to note about this episode is that at some point, uh, another corpse turns up, and that corpse belongs to uh, Yvette's uncle. So she is in the guardianship of her uncle Godfred and her aunt Agnes. Godfred turns up dead. The initial assumption is that this death is presumably related to the other death because that might make sense. It turns out, however, it is not at all. And once again, some like real neck forensics is going on. Yeah, they spend a lot of time poking at people's necks. So Cadfile, with his usual unexplained but flawless ability to read people's bodies, determines that (laughs) drum roll... The hands that strangled Godfrey Picard, one of them had fewer than five fingers. Yes, and who has fewer than five fingers? Lepers! Because they keep (laughs) losing their fingers all the time. There's probably a joke there. Anyway, and so he, and then from this he deduces that in fact the secret leper called Lazarus is actually... Iveta's crusading grandfather who went to the east and then got leprosy and now has come back incognito and is saving her from her evil god godfather guardian person god, yeah but like will not reveal himself and then just disappears again to be a leper yeah so he's just hanging out as a leper and like no i want to be remembered in glory and also dead but also i'm going to murder with my bare hands well that's because <laughs> he's such a But, like, the whole thing, and again, I think this is actually not the worst in terms of accuracy. Like, basically, Cadfile says, I don't need to, like, tell 
tell the law about this because it isn't actually illegal because it was a fair fight. Like the, the leopard challenged this guy to a fight in the woods and the guy, Godfrey Pickard, had a sword and the leper didn't, but the leper was like this famous crusader and so he could kill him with his bare hands, which is like maybe not the most believable, but sure, let's call that. But like, I think the sort of morality of it, I think, is clear that like medieval people did consider killing in a combat situation to be to be okay, different essentially from yeah and like um, maybe not always lawful but like not the same thing as murder and so right. i think like cadfile's lack of moral compunction on this particular front i think makes sense yeah no i think that's legitimate the thing that i do find like slightly confusing is exactly how this fight went in that i feel like i guess i just don't understand how a person who is holding a sword could get strangled who could get strangled by a leper Godfrey Pickard doesn't um, seem like the kind of guy who's like that much of a fighter. He's more of a schemer. Yeah, I mean, so the thing that would probably make the most sense is that at some point he dropped the sword, um, at which point it would have become more even. Um, also, but... a sword isn't that good for fighting at super close quarters. Yeah. So, like, I think prob- I mean, probably he took the element of surprise. I mean, he yeah. wasn't expecting that, like, this leper turns out to be some kind of badass crusader. Crusader, ninja. yeah, crusader like... knight, so... <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, so we have ultimately two murders or two deaths, uh, one of which results in the person being hauled off uh, to be prosecuted, I guess, for murder, and one of which does not because he's a cool crusader knight, but will never reveal himself. And then the hot-headed young lovers, in both of them in their brightly colored cloaks, get to ride off into the sunset and be together. And by the sunset, I guess we mean the Renaissance. Yeah, they go back to the Renaissance together. <laughs> yes. So the, uh, we then followed up with the, uh, the I guess, finale of the first season, Monkshood, uh, which has yet another unpleasant nobleman. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Unpleasant noble. I mean, this is another, like, mystery genre thing, though. You kind of, it's, it's helpful to have someone who's so unlikable that there are mo- multiple people with reasons to kill them, because then yes. there are, like, multiple possible suspects. So this is a, another classic example of that type. Yeah, so we have Gervais Bonnell, who it very much seems like there are plenty of people who could have murdered him. The obvious candidate, however, is his stepson. So Gervais married a woman named Rachildis, who essentially, it turns out, married him basically because he agreed that he would name her son as his from her previous marriage as his heir, and that he would get the nice manner, or I guess like adequate manner is how I would actually describe it. Um, she is not apparently of noble birth, yes. um, but presumably the, I mean, presumably she had a nice dowry. That is presumably his motiv- motivation here, although that's left implied. Yeah. We know one of the reasons that we know she is clearly not of noble birth is that her, or that, you know, and probably her first husband also was not, is that her daughter from the first marriage is now married to a carpenter. And one of the complaints about Edwin, her son, that uh, Gervais, our Dick Nobleman, has is that he has been spending too much time with these low people who are, I guess, his sister and brother-in-law. Yeah. Um, and so basically the, you know, the stepfather, the stepson don't get along. The stepfather is used to controlling people and using his power to control people. And so they have a big screaming match and the stepson runs off in a huff. Yes. So the stepson runs off in a huff and then briefly comes back and then kind of runs off in a huff again. But after the second time running off in the in a huff, uh, Gervais then falls over dead of poison coming from, I guess there were some uh, some nice partridges. Okay, oh, so we have yes. to... We, so 
the real drama in this episode is property tra- like property transfers yes. and charitable yes, that's, donation. Yes, you should make sure um, to discuss that. Yeah, that's that. You know, the, that's that's the really exciting stuff here. So basically, having had this rift with his stepson, to whom he had promised his manor, um, Malili, Gervais apparently enters into an arrangement with the Abbey of Shrewsbury, where uh, whereby he is willing his manor to the Abbey in exchange for a kind for the Abbey supporting him. For the re- and his wife for the rest of their life in one of the abbey's own properties. So you know the abbey basically gets this manor, and then well, and he gets benefit for his soul presumably. And in return, they he and his wife and two servants um, live in one of the abbey's properties, and the abbey kind of gives them like food and stuff, which yeah. is and potentially not a bad deal in terms of also perhaps being kind of cared for in old age, which he is would have been reaching. Soon, if he had not been murdered. Right. So this is sort of a, like, retirement situation. Um, so the contract is drawn up. They've moved into the house. The deal has to be put on hold because the abbot of Shrewsbury is called away to kind of give an account to himself to the papal legate. So basically all the business of the abbey has to go on pause while the abbot is being reviewed. So this sort of, this deal is in limbo at this moment, which is why... Richildis, the wife, thinks that there's a chance for the stepfather and stepson to make up, which is where we lead to the second storming off in a huff. Then Gervais eats this sort of dish of partridge that the Abbey has sent over and falls down dead of poison. Yes, and Edwin is, of course, the obvious candidate for being the murderer, both because they've been fighting and because since this uh, charter donating the property to the monastery has not actually yet been ratified, that means that the only valid claim on the land is actually Edwin's because prior to the donation, Gervais had drawn up a will granting the monastery, you know, naming Edwin as his heir. So, and the, so that still stands since they never actually ratified the charter. Yeah, the basically, he is the only one who profits from the, from the crime as far as anyone can see. Yes. Quick note related to that is that we also see him getting a bit I don't know, vaguely rapey with a servant girl. Oh, him, the dead Gervais, yes, Gervais. The, late, the late Gervais, uh, shortly before he dies. Uh, we pretty see rapey. Him, him getting pretty rapey with a servant girl. I mean, to, um, to the show's credit, that this is a bad thing. <laughs> yes, it is obviously presented as a bad thing. Richildis is uh, upset and annoyed. It is clear that the kind of other men of his household are also, uh, you know, vaguely disapproving of this whole situation. So it is definitely presented as part of the thing that makes him kind of unappealing and also is a kind of obvious, I kind of was wondering actually, especially given the way it is shot, I was actually wondering if the, one of the, if that servant girl was going to turn out to be the murderer. Yeah, because she actually had just as much of a chance to put the poison in the dish the way they shot it. They just, but nobody ever seems to say that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's surprising that nobody ever accuses her. I think that's really interesting. And especially because that's actually definitely, as I said, where I thought it was going, or at least that I thought that was going to be a potential plot line, given that there was a actually kind of quite distinct shot where you see her with her back to the camera in between us and the, in between the viewer and the partridge. Yeah. So I definitely thought that was going to be a thing, but it was not in fact really a thing. But then, because um, because this guy has dropped has dropped dead, Cadfile is called to the scene, and suddenly, or no, maybe before the guy dies, I guess he discovers that yes. we discover that Richildis is not only Evil Gervais's wife. In her youth, she was Cadfile's girlfriend. Yeah, before, they went on, before he went on crusade, and then never came back. Um, and she and married she- someone else. <laughs> 
and then you know finally came back and she was and she was at what she's like I waited like eight years and he's like yeah no fair enough that you stopped waiting for me after eight years and married someone yeah and like it seems as though she's under the impression that like he became a monk because she broke his heart but like also that's clearly not actually what happened like he's yeah I mean we find out more in the following episode about uh, the specific reason also that he took so long coming back which definitely kind of makes him seem a little less like wow he was definitely pining for her yeah Um, but like you know he clearly thinks fondly of her but also like is not there like this is she is she is not like the great tragedy of his life or something no Um, and also like in a lot of ways in terms of the kind of visuals like she seems to be I don't know a little more kind of like grabby with him and he seems to be very much like I have my vows I will behave appropriately with this woman that I have this past with yeah I would say she's she's definitely a little handsy with him yeah so anyway that means that Cadfile is both determined to help her and also feels that he's like very compromised in the situation because he's obviously got an interest in helping her out Right, and her son, who's accused of murder, also kind of complicating matters further. Uh, Cadfael uh, pretty pretty quickly realizes that the poison used is actually an ointment, is actually uh, from his own stores, and is an ointment that he uses to kind of soothe uh, sore muscles, muscles, I guess. This is a fairly common plant in England, Monk's Hood, which is actually, like, this is not the only... British murder mystery where this has been the murder weapon that I've seen. I think this Mm. is probably just, I mean, I'm sure that this was chosen by the author because it's got such a, it has um, the word on brand name. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, apparently it is, it it is actually a sort of medicinal plant in reality um, from what I've heard in, in England. And, but yeah, it's, it's sort of a good as a rubbing oil, but if you drink it, it will kill you. Yeah. And so he realizes that's um, what the, what uh, Gervais drank. So he is very invested in solving the murder because solving murders is his thing now. And also, you know, he has this interest because, you know, he does, you know, care about Richildas and therefore her son and believes him to probably be innocent. And as, and he also even uh, actually kind of tests him at some point before kind of really going forward with this, where he kind of hands the kid a glass of something and uh, the kid like kind of sniffs and he goes, oh, that sounds kind of, that's this like smells kind of familiar. Like, sure, I'll drink this. And then Cadvel kind of grabs it out of his hands at the last minute uh, because it is in fact the ointment that he kind of gave him to kind of test like whether he would hesitate about drinking it because if he would then he knew it was poisonous and therefore was perhaps the murderer yeah so it was established that edwin and both of the male servants in gervais bonnell's household all at some point had the opportunity to like come into contact with this rubbing ointment yes Um, so like they all could have known like what it was and what it did but also so could like literally everyone because it's sort of in the in the abbey infirmary right so there's definitely a lot of people who certainly had you know the option to murder him at least so of course you know question is motivation there is meanwhile also a lot of drama where given Cadfael's questionable for a monk past with this woman and given the fact that he is currently keeps kind of disobeying, uh, not the, the abbot is, you know, kind of out of town and eventually it turns, you know, they kind of hear he has been replaced. Uh, and so the mean prior is the person who is actually in charge and the prior keeps ordering Cadfell to stay out of it and he ignores him. And so Cadfell is kind of like pre-fired as a monk, basically. Yes. Yeah. Cadfell, this is like, 
there's like a lot of drama for Cad Files Monk career and like his life, and there there's a lot. Yeah, so like this is a lot the one I think where that. there's where he is most personally invested in this. Well, one of the ones where he's most personally yeah. invested in this whole situation, at least throughout the course of the episode, there are like various things that seem like they could kind of change the course of his life. Yeah. So uh, instead of kind of going off to hang out at a farm and think about what he's done, which is what he is supposed to do, uh, Cadfell continues to uh, work on solving the mystery. And ultimately, in part because of going back to how we know that Gervais was a bit rapey with the servants, it turns out that he figures out that Gervais's servant, what is his name, Murig? Mayrig. Mayrig. But my wait, Welsh is not great. But the epiphany. Yeah. The epiphany oh, comes yes. when he's talking to like some old Mayrig's old uncle who's like turns out to be a monk there, who's Mayrig shockingly enough is Welsh. His uncle is called Reese because How many called, Welsh names yeah. can we possibly come up with? And it turns out that this manor, the manor that is at the center of this whole dispute, is in Wales. Yes, um, and which that, means that is Welsh the, law. That is the sort of applies. big epiphany for Cadfile because Cadfile is Welsh and he understands that this is a crucial difference. And we, the viewers, find that out later on. Yes, and the crucial difference is that under Welsh law, and this is, by the way, in fact true, all sons, illegitimate or legitimate, have a valid claim to their father's estates. If they are acknowledged by the father. Yes. So it turns out that the other servant, Mayrig, um, whom we already knew is a son of another of a woman servant, had been in the household a number of years ago. And had died. And had died. Mayrig was the son of her and Gervais. And Gervais had, in fact, given him a letter acknowledging him as his son. Yeah, so basically this whole time, um, Mayrig had been actually the real heir to the estate and Mayrig had known that this whole will that Gervais had made um, giving the estate to his stepson wasn't going to hold up in court. And probably Gervais had known that also, was my guess, and didn't care. Yeah, um, I mean, he doesn't seem like he really gave a shit about the promise that he made to his wife and her stepson. No. Um, so, you know, he'd been, he'd been sort of biding his time secretly, um, waiting for his horrible rapey father to die um, so that he could take over this manor, which he really loved. He lives in Wales and it's like really nice and he has connections in the surrounding community. Really great place to settle down, I guess. Anyway. I do want to note about the manor, maybe like nice for rural medieval Wales. Um, like well, sure, it's, but if you're from <laughs> rural medieval Wales, yes, like, um, let's, not be, let's not be elitist. Yeah, I mean, I just do want to note that like when we say the manor is like really nice, it is not like what you would necessarily think of as, like, the nicest possible medieval manner. <laughs> Some combination of accuracy and low budget of the television show. Yes. Unclear. The, the manner is a bit scruffy, but also I think <laughs> that that's not actually totally inaccurate. Wales is No, I mean, I think like... it's legitimate for the manor to be a bit scruffy, uh, but just wanted to note in terms of the visuals for our listeners that, like, this is not an especially grand-looking manor. Sure. Anyway, <laughs> so Cadfile turns up dramatically at the Welsh court where Mayrig is trying to make this claim, and says, you know, basically, Mayrig, you, you killed Gervais. Right. And of course, the problem and the reason Mayrig killed Gervais 
is that while he could easily contest the uh, settling of the manor on somebody who was not, in fact, his son, he would not actually have uh, a claim to contest him instead donating the manor to a monastery. That would have been a more sort of serious legal obstacle because you can actually, it's basically, you know, religious institutions really like have a whole apparatus to defend themselves in court. And yeah, you know, and it's it a very is, solid legal thing to do. And yeah, and so heirs do sometimes contest that kind of situation, but the monasteries tend to have more resources to, uh, you know, prosecute their claims and that. Regard, and it is a relatively normal thing that a person dying would settle some amount of their property on a monastery to the disadvantage of their uh, of their heirs. Yeah. So, in other words, the idea is that Mayrig hears that this is going to happen; he stands to lose his inheritance. And Cadfile is of the opinion that if this had all gone through immediately, Mayrig would have just made the best of it. But since this deal was put on hold. And since Mayrig learns that this poison, that this like rubbing oil, which he's been using to like help with Uncle Reese's rheumatism is a poison, he basically has the means and the opportunity and the motive and just kind of decides to go for it. So really it's all the fault of church reform. Hmm. For uh, for causing a delay in the transfer of this mod of this, uh, this property. Yeah. um, And so, so Mayrig basically like, fights his way out of the court after Cadfile makes this accusation, ends up stabbing Hugh Beringer, who has arrived in the nick of time. Cadfile Poor Hugh is literally just following Cadfael like at a distance essentially for the entire episode and kind of like keeping up with his trail, but like a few hours behind. And then he shows up at this court and he's like, finally I found Cadfael. I've been like looking for him all day and <laughs> just immediately get stabbed. Yeah, but of course, since Cadfile's there, we know that Hugh Beringer is not going to be remotely injured. Yeah, um, clearly. Or, I mean, not he's he's going to recover immediately with, when Cadfile goes get and gets his herbs. But then Cadfile confronts Mayrig alone again in the manor and basically lets Mayrig go. Right on the grounds that like you never really like meant to be a murderer, which I feel like is a kind of morally questionable choice, but. It's fine. It is morally questionable. I, I mean, think, Gervais is terrible. So yeah, like, Gervais I don't is care terrible. Much, but... And Paris. I mean, this is actually, I think, something that like puts Cadfile's morality, like, unlike I think the previous yes. you know, thing where he thought that it wasn't that bad that Lazarus the leper killed that guy in fair combat. I think the idea that he would think a parasite was okay is a little more questionable. Is a little yeah, bit more questionable I mean, because it is clearly a premeditated murder to some degree. I mean. You can't do poisoning without some amount of premeditation. Yeah, it's I a premeditated like. murder, and specifically of your own kin, which most yeah. medieval people would have considered significantly worse. And especially your own father. It's uh, like filial piety. That's yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's like a very questionable, you know, morally questionable act that he seems like weirdly chill about. Well, I mean, again, like Cadfile's a modern man in the medie- in medieval times, and I think we can all... in. The modern world, we might say, okay, well, this guy is technically his father, but he's also, like, the sort of raper and abuser of his mother and, like, this sort of terrible person all the way around. And yeah. clearly Mayrig has a bunch of issues that he's never going to, like, have worked out in therapy. Because they do not have therapy. Um, yeah. So, and, you know, he, see, he, like, desperately, he, like, tries to confess to Cadfile, clearly because he just needs to talk to somebody, and Cadfile's like, I'm not a priest, which is also fair enough. Like, yeah, you, there you actually is a good priest. point that there are distinctions between monks and priests. And at this time, most monks were not priests, although later many monks are priests. Um, yeah. So... 
but then of course he listens to him anyway because you know the murderer has to confess to the de- detective right it's like i can't really help you but you could please confess to me so anyway mayrid goes free edwin the stepson inherits malley everything is right with the world Cadvel also gets back to the monastery, at which point it turns out that the previous abbot has been deposed, but that the new abbot is a cool dude who is fine with Cadvel solving murders. Apparently, or at least is like not going to kick him out. And he and Richildis have like a last moment. and Where once um, again, Richildis is a bit handsy and is also like, why don't you just stop being a monk and come with me? And he's like, because I want to be a monk, <laughs> essentially. I mean, Richilda's is a little bit in a vulnerable place, I feel like. I feel like yes. she's, like, somebody who's in a really crappy relationship who, like, runs into her, like, be- her, like, sort of, it, you know, the, the one, one that got, got away, away at, like, yeah. at this very vulnerable moment and is, like, thinking that this is going to be how her story goes. And Cadfile, I think, is, like, quite respectfully being like, this is not how this is going to go. Right, that he is happy with his whole monk choice and situation overall, and um, it does not actually want to be with her at this point. So. Yeah. Um, but Which like, is obviously his choice. Yeah, and I mean, you know, she's not, like, to- she doesn't, like, totally throw herself at him, and it's clear that she's got, like, a rich life going forward. And I, I mean, her son's like, got the manor now. His, like, relationships of mutual respect with older women it, in the show is something It's, that, it's kind of nice. Like, it's sort of delightful. Yeah. I mean, I mean my, when I was a kid, my mom always liked this episode the best because she liked that there was, like, the central romance was, like, featuring an older woman. Right, yeah, which is actually quite nice. It's normally all these, like, young, cute people getting to have romance, and it's nice that, like, this older couple gets to have this romantic moment. Yeah. I did not think that that was that much of a bonus when I was 10, but I get it now. Right, yeah, it's kind of sweet. So there's one more episode that we watched, and by which I guess I mean that I have watched uh, since Abby has seen. Yeah, basically we chose these based on, or I chose these based on my memory of which ones were my favorite. We were heavily weighted toward the first season because, as I said, they replaced the actor who plays Hugh Baringer with a dumb, like someone who I don't think plays it as well and also isn't as cute. And then in the third season... They replace him again, and he's even worse. Um, so they kind of get worse as you go forward. But um, we did dip into the second season very briefly for the episode two of the second, or the or episode one of the second season. Yeah. So uh, which we do now have a new Hugh. It is my headcanon that the first Hugh actually died, and that we've just silently replaced him with another person who has the same name. But uh, yeah, it's probably way, not like, true. Um, you know, you know, like the the. There were those Flor- the Florentine tax records in the 15th century yeah. that, like, you know, they that people would name their eldest child the same, their youngest child the same thing as their eldest child. And when the tax person asked, they said, well, so, in, you know, like, Vincenzo died and then I remade him. Right. Yeah. And that that was actually quite common. <laughs> and in general, also, that there are just not that many names in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Um, no, there are really, there are like five names. Yeah. I mean, my favorite example, you know, from Catalonia is that uh, there is actually a case where there's a man named Arnau Ferrer who is accused of piracy. And his defense is, it's not me. It's another dude named Arnau Ferrer. And then they actually bring people up to say, like, yeah, I know, like, five people named Arnau Ferrer. And totally honestly, it's not a bad defense, in my opinion. We don't actually know how it turned out, I don't think. But, uh, like, non-zero chance someone could make that argument in Catalonia now, actually. But that is, they <laughs> but actually even, probably even more <laughs> yes. so um, in the Middle Ages. And, you know, for women, it was like half of all women were named Maria and everybody else got a choice of, like, four other names. 
Um, yeah, it's, it's more like, of a kind of evenly split pie for men, but Hugh was a very, very popular name. Yeah, I mean, and in general, it's like, I don't know, five to ten names per religion, per gender. Yeah. So this episode, the uh, last one that we watched, is called, the, it's called Virgin in the Ice. So our opening shot is that we have uh, our uh, brother Osman, who I mentioned before, is, uh, briefly at least, is uh, Kadfael's novice buddy. Uh, thus far, I guess most of what we've seen of him is that he's supposed to be assisting Kadfael in his workshop, but is really bad at it. He's kind of like the, the like charming Igor. Like he's like the, yeah, he's the sort I of mean, like, like adorably hapless sidekick. Yeah, I mean, most of what we've seen is like him dropping things. Uh, so actually, that's the first moment in which you find out that that ointment in the last episode is poisonous, is in fact because Oswin drops it onto a bunch of basil. Yeah, and so he's supposed to be a novice. He's supposed to be like, so, you know, a monk in training. He's supposed to not really know what he's doing and be kind of like, although the actor, I think, is probably older than, I think he's supposed to be a sort of gangly adolescent almost. Yeah. Um, and like not really know what he's doing. Um, and Cad File is kind of a father figure to him. Yeah. So we see Brother Oswin, who's uh, kind of walking through a snowstorm with a nun, Sister Hilaria. Struggling through the howling winds. Yeah, struggling through the howling winds, deeply afraid for their lives and that they might freeze. Uh, They are relieved to find shelter in a little barn, going through the snow, at which point they start snuggling against one another for warmth. And then we cut to... Oswin, like, totally freaked out, sprinting through the woods, being like, God, forgive me. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. So we don't know exactly what happened there. And we will not for a while because he then immediately runs into a group of bandits who... Who just basically virtually kill him for funsies. Yes. Like, he doesn't have anything they're trying to get. He doesn't seem to have any knowledge. They're just like, I guess we found this person. Let us just murder him. Which I do actually want to comment on that just quickly now. This is actually a period where given the kind of civil war situation, there would have been somewhat more roving bandits than normal. But the roving bandits, I feel like in general, tend to kill people for their money or some actual thing. And, you know, and I and also potentially kind of rape women, which will come up, but not so much just kind of miscellaneous let's murder this dude, because why not? I mean, and especially, you know, while I think it was not the case that monks were as sort of safe walking around as they thought they should have been, being sort of men of God, like, it was also not nothing to just kill a monk for no reason. Yeah, and especially, yeah. just killing some guy. Um, Yes. So this is basically the act that is supposed to establish these bandits as totally unredeemable kind of like that guy trying to hit the leper in the yeah. in the previous thing but luckily for Oswin he is not quite dead he has just been <laughs> beaten senseless and like, stabbed and stabbed and then lay out in the snow for like 24 hours before and a shepherd somehow is not dead before the shepherd takes him to brother Cadfile. at which point like you know if, if brother Cadfile gets his hands on you before you literally stop breathing you know you're going to make a full recovery so yes um, and also i just want to note at this point that Cadfile is a medication which is the uh, kind of difference between life and death for dear brother oswin looks 100 percent like pesto spread on injera 
Yeah, he kind of like spreads this sort of green paste on a cloth. Um, so yeah, and, and the way the cloth like is folded, it definitely looks like injera, the Ethiopian it's bread. Pretty tasty. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would eat that. Yeah, though, given actually, Cab Fell's ointments, probably one shouldn't. But. I mean, this wasn't like the highest budget show. Like non-zero chance, they just like went to the store and got some like and, and I got stuff. some pesto. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. This is also the show where the chainmail is not even subtly just like a sweater. Oh yeah, the chainmail is definitely. Yeah. So Brother Oswin is savagely beaten and lying, uh, essentially kind of unable to move or talk for the most part at this point. We also find out that there are a group of people who are missing and uh, one needs to search for. So it is the, I believe, niece and nephew of uh, one of the rebel leaders, actually one of the ones who was mentioned before. I was actually looking at names and their uncle is, I think, actually the one who is Goddess father oh fascinating yeah um, no wait that's not, that doesn't make sense because he's supposed yeah. to have lately returned from the holy land maybe they screwed up with the names yeah okay anyway so the abbot gets a letter saying that these two these two children a 12 year old boy named eve and a 15 year old girl named ermina and her tutor a young nun are kind of lost somewhere around shrewsbury and their uncle wants to come and search for them their uncle who is an upstanding man who has lately returned from the Holy Land, but on the wrong side in the Civil War, and therefore this new Hugh Baringer, who is has a much worse personality than the old one, won't let him, won't let the yes. uncle come search for the children, but conduct, but says he will conduct a search himself for these children. Yes. So uh, they're out, and so Hugh and Cadfael are out in the woods in search of the children. They find initially the boy, Eve, but then Cadfael also sees uh, frozen in the river in ice a young woman who obviously is now extremely dead. Yeah, and so they kind of hack the young woman out of the ice, or they hack the sort of, like, the block of ice. A block of ice out, yeah. And in one of the earlier scenes in this show, there's this whole period where they kind of set this woman up in the chapel, put, like, fires sort of around to melt the ice, and there's this whole long kind of playing of religious music and water dripping as Yeah, there's a lot of shots of melting ice um, at this point. Um, And I kind of actually liked the visual effect that she kind of looks like one of those statues of the Virgin Mary that has kind of, because like the perspective of the ice kind of makes her face go a little funny. This also I feel like might have been one of the higher budget scenes in terms of figuring out how to film this. Yeah, I bet they really insisted on that. And so... She finally is melted, and then, of course, Cadfile can do his trademark forensic examination. Yes. So the part of the forensic examination, just to note, and, uh, you know, there will be a uh, the reason there is a content warning on this episode, in addition to, I guess, some stuff that we've implied before, is that she has apparently been, quote, defiled, which they're very vague about, uh, that Cadfile kind of mentions it, and somebody says, wait, what? And he just goes, there are signs. And we just kind of move on from that, which uh, I did find a little bit odd because uh, in the place where there would be signs, that seems like, you know, a thing that I would imagine some monks having some issues with this monk also kind of poking around. Well, because also like he is examining, the shot is him examining her from the chest up. And he does examine that there is blood on her shift, on her chest, like on the chest of her, like, garment but that is not her blood yeah lifts it up to sort of see that it's not actually her blood and brother jerome who we haven't talked about brother we haven't talked about brother jerome brother jerome is the asshole monk no he is (laughs) he is the he is the sort of toady sidekick of very upright and kind of bossy brother prior and he's like a huge tattletale and like a busybody and kind of 
Also, we determine sort of like weirdly obsessed with sex and how other people shouldn't be thinking about it and how which bad might that be related is. to the fact that he, I think, clearly has a thing for Brother Pryor. But. Yeah, I mean, I think the the unrequited love of Brother Jerome for for Brother Pryor is is one of the the great unexploited narrative elements in this show. Yes. But anyway, Brother Jerome is like totally freaked out that Cadfile is even like checking to see if this like blood stain on her chest is her blood. So it's unclear how he would have managed to do any kind of a further examination. Right, exactly. Which presumably happened before Brother Jerome came in, but it does seem odd that that was not, does not like really come up for any further discussion. Yeah, but the other thing that Cadfile determines from his examination is that, that this woman was also smothered, that that is how she died, that yes. someone put their hands over her mouth and she died. Yeah, based on her bruising patterns. So uh, they now have this woman and are trying to figure out what happens. Eve is able to identify her as Sister Hilaria, who the was nun. I guess, his sis- the nun who was his sister's tutor and she was traveling with them. So now we realize that this is the nun that we, we had seen Brother Oswin with in the beginning of the shot, and now she's dead, and he had this, like, crazy freak-out moment and is now unconscious. Yes, and... and like, what happened? Yeah, and then, inconveniently, in front of Brother Jerome, wakes up for, like, two minutes and starts Brother yelling. Brother Oswin does, Yes, yeah. Brother Oswin wakes up in front of Brother Jerome... And starts, and starts yelling about her soft lips and stuff. Yeah, starts raving about, you know, her lips were so soft and, uh, you know, like, God forgive me. And then he hears that she's dead and says that his that her death is on me or something along. I, yeah. I have been your death. Yes, I have been your death. My, my mortal sin, I have been your death. And Brother Jerome is like sort of quivering with the scandalousness of all yes, of this. Yes, like that is a confession. He Um, is very excited about the possibility that one of the monks in his monastery raped and murdered a young woman, which is... Weirdly into this. A weird thing to be excited about, yeah. Yeah, Um, and it's sort of unclear if it's because he has it in for Brother Osmond or because, like, he really likes an excuse to talk about dirty, sexy things. Or a little of both. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and clearly, like, he and Cadfell have a kind of enmity that is long-standing, and Oswin is Cadfell's buddy, so it is clearly partially yeah. that, I think. And so, well, Brother Jerome runs off to, like, tattle on uh, Brother Oswin, Brother Oswin, still in the grip of his madness, stumbles off into another snowstorm. And Eve runs after him, so they've now disappeared while then going off and searching for them. Eve ends up ultimately in the hands of our... Uh, our evil bandits from before they do at this point come across Ermina the sister in the woods oh we've forgotten to talk about the dark stranger yes thus far we have just briefly seen a handsome stranger in the woods who is wounded who has the same pesto on injera medication that Cadfile has he, he is we see him sort of topless in the woods in the snow um sort of bandaging his wounds with the, with his sort of pesto medication. St. Mary's brand pesto. Yes. And he is sort of described as, you know, he's come, he's going around like as a woodsman or he, he's calling himself a woodsman, but there's some sort of, you know, somebody's like, oh, but I saw he wore a sword. And oh, they also find in the woods the bodies of a couple of guys in crusading outfits. So yes. they know the uncle has actually sent in a party to search Right. For the, the Ermina, children. The, chi- the children. So they find Ermina. 
It turns out she'd been taken care of by handsome woods, woodsman, dark stranger guy the whole time. We also, at some point in their search, they go to the manor of Everard Bottrell, who is the nobleman who is betrothed to Ermina. That's where they were going. When they yeah, so off. that's yeah, they knew that's where they were going. So they went there to see if they knew anything. And he had been attacked by the bandits. That's yes, kind of how they how these children got lost again, apparently. Yes. So we also know that he is wounded, apparently, in his fight with the bandits. Yeah. So back at home, they're kind of chatting with Ermina. We find out that Ermina has been hanging out with our sexy dude in the woods. And also uh, we get some conversation about his past, which is that he has a Syrian Muslim mother and a father who is a Christian and was a crusader. His name is Olivier de Bretagne. Yes. So Caterpillar is like, oh, is he French? No, he's Syrian. Yes. She um, obviously wants to jump his bones, which is fair enough because he's very good looking. Yeah, and she really wants to bone him. And also... But romantic I would, style. Romantic style, yes. Yeah. In a loving, committed way. Yeah. And also just to note, this is, I assume, the only person who could theoretically be a person of color in the entire series that's correct who is played i looked this up by what is clearly like a rather tan scottish man yes <laughs> that's a shame so which is uh, a choice that probably most shows made in the 1990s which also, hopefully you know, fewer would make now i mean yeah and in in the 1990s i think there was pro- there was very little pushback to the everybody in the middle ages was white narrative yes well, and also to be fair, not like not that Scottish people should get to play Syrian people, but I think we also would overstate the extent to which Syrian people looked that different. Yeah, but uh, it is a kind of moment where that would have been an opportunity, I would say, to hire an actor of color, yep. as opposed to this Scottish dude. A missed opportunity yes. there. So at some point, they're kind of back into the woods, I guess, looking now for Oswin and Eve. Eve very cleverly stabs a wineskin at some point to leave a bit of a trail in the snow. They run into the group of bandits. Wait, so, oh, yes. so Hasvile runs into Olivier de Bretagne. They team up. They trust Eve. They end up sort of trying to take Eve and take on the bandit single-handedly. But fortunately, at the last at the last moment, moment Hugh Baringer also comes and gives them backup. And then there's like a sort of showdown where Olivier. Oh wait, we need to explain who the bandits are. It turns out the bandits were the rescue party that the crusader uncle had sent. They turned on, they like mutinied. In like five minutes, apparently. And Olivier was like the only one who remained loyal. Olivier had been sent And I guess they had a captain who was in charge, who they killed pretty much immediately. That's why Olivier is wounded, because they also obviously tried to kill him, but he got away. And the rest of them are just crusaders, which, I mean, even if they didn't want to be crusaders anymore. The fact that they like jumped, they like tried to kill a monk seems like a little weird to me, but yeah, I mean, they seem to have gotten over like the whole, out some of their issues. Yeah. These are clearly not men of the deepest faith. I mean, I think the fact that court former crusaders would like go wrong and become bandits is actually not unbelievable. I think the fact that it would happen like within five seconds and exactly the way it happens is a little, yeah. I mean, I think they would have perhaps had a little bit more compunction about basically murdering a monk. And yeah, I mean, it's just like the speed seems odd to me in general, uh, not only because they're crusaders necessarily, but because they are in some ways, it seems like kind of sworn men of their Lord and have been for a long time. So the fact that essentially the second they're out of his sight, they mutiny and become bandits. 
Which, like, I mean, it's possible that he doesn't have a lot. I mean, I think this is something that does happen in wartime, that, Mm -hmm. like, soldiers who don't have a master anymore or who sort of don't see any kind of way forward will just become bandits. It's sort of unclear to me why they didn't see any future anymore with their lord, but that's not really the point of the story. So it's not, I mean, not the worst, I would say. Not the worst anyway. So, but all this means that Olivier knows the bandits and, like, has a personal grudge against them. So, of course, um, he has a showdown and kills the bandit captain. There's a lot of single combat. Oh, so much single combat. It's great. Also, just a quick note at this point. So there is a bit earlier in the kind of initial meeting between Olivier and Cadfell where Olivier, uh, you know, they're kind of fighting briefly and Olivier thinks that he has kind of got the drop on Cadfell, but then it turns out Cadfell is definitely carrying a dagger and uh, that seems to keep a surprising amount of like weaponry from his old crusader days that he just starts carrying around like when which as a monk is actually quite questionable you are not supposed to be carrying around uh, swords essentially yeah and then there's this one part where like they're rescuing eve and cad files like draws his little knife and is like yeah let me get let me at him and olivia is like no like get this child away from the fighting and i'll do the fighting and the bandits part and it's like cad file what is wrong with you of course you can't just like go fight all the bandits with a little dagger. A, that, and also, I mean, there I mean, there are actually legitimate prohibitions that mo- that uh, people who are priests or monks are not supposed to shed blood. Yeah, like, that's And in fact, okay. there are, like, various, like, things that are come up with, that, like, the church comes up with to get around that even. Yeah, like, they carry maces instead. And, yes, there are bishops who go into battle but carry maces because maces, quote, don't shed blood, although obviously they actually do, but not quite in the same way as a sword. But, yeah, you monks aren't for... Stabbing is not for monks. Yes, like, like he is actually like as a monk not supposed to be carrying a dagger as a weapon. That is like a weird thing about Cadfile that like it seems like the hardest part of the worldliness that he seems to get carrying a weapon seems to be the vow he like breaks the most often. Yes, it seems like an odd right. Yeah, obedience is not his thing. But yeah, the weapon I find a little bit odd. But uh, anyway, so he then it turns out you know kind of had uh, Olivier you know has kind of dagger um, to Olivier the whole time. And then Olivier borrows that move, ultimately, to kill the bandit. And he's like, always beware of the unexpected stroke. And, Kat, and then, like, Catfile and he give, like, a little nod to yeah. each other. And they, and they have a total, like, bond. They got a moment. Yeah, they, it's like, they, they totally bond, which is awesome. Yes. They've now defeated the bandits, but also... I can't remember, how do they come to the realization that the bandit is, I think basically just because of a conversation with him, they realize that he is not the person no, who raped and murdered Valeria. because he is not, the bandit was otherwise uninjured. So remember, yes, Sister Valeria right. had blood on her shift. It was not her blood. So the theory was that she had, like, create that whoever raped her had defensive wounds of some kind. The bandit didn't have any. And so Cadfile notes that, like, it can't have been him. So... And I then, did find it a bit, a bit odd, though, by the way, that there's, like, 12 bandits and they do not search all of them, but uh, I assume that's just know, a time honestly, thing. that has never occurred to me <laughs> and is a really good point. <laughs> um, I guess they figured that, like, he's the worst of them all, so if, he, if someone was going to do something really bad, like, he would... Yeah, that's a if real, was, that's a real If it was a hole. real thing, they <laughs> would have obviously searched all of the bandits to see if any of them had defensive wounds. Because as I said, there are like a dozen of them, but they do not do that. And that is not presented as a problem. Yeah. So in other words, bandit chief is out as the, as the rapist. That means brother Oswin's back in the frame. Because Poor he brother of Oswin. course does have wounds. But then in a sort of great moment, brother Cadfile realizes 
that basically this the body of the nun had blood on her left side. Brother Oswin was also stabbed on her on his left side. And the he had blood there was blood on Oswin's cloak and the blood also was on the left side. So basically if he was on top of her it would have been the other side. Like you can't, it, it's sort of, it's a kind of a mirror image situation where it Yeah, would have, that if he was wounded on his left side, then it would have shown up on her, on the right side of her tunic. And most, and more significantly, that because she has blood on the left side of her tunic, whoever the actual rapist is had to have been wounded on the right side of his chest. And we know from before that Ermina's intended husband, what's-his-face, Everard Bottrell was in fact wounded on his right side. Yes. And so then it turns out there's this whole dramatic thing he's that... He's confronted, Bahril's confronted with her body. Yeah, and Armina's kind of like staring at him not very happily. It turns out that Armina basically kind of ditched him for being a coward. When the bandits attacked, he kind of ran away. And, and then he, refused to go and search for her brother. She had tried to dump him, basically, when he proved himself unequal to the bandit attack. Then it turns out... He kind of goes after her in the woods to basically try and grab her and bring her back, and uh, instead finds poor sister Hilaria. Well, no, it, it's worse than that, because when she tries to leave yes, him, she, yeah, he actually right. basically first tries to rape her. And she gets away. And the idea... And, and the she's the one brother, who wounds him. Yeah, Brother yes. Cadfile realizes this, because of course... Because he's wounded on his right side, which means that a left-handed person probably did it. Ermina is left-handed. She's the yes. only left-handed person in the plot. So basically, his wound was not, as he claimed, a wound from fighting with the bandits, but like the wounds that Ermina inflicted when he was trying to rape her as a sort of prelude to forcing her to marry him. She then yes. runs off into the woods. He comes across Sister Hilaria and takes, off, takes his frustration out on her. In the course of this, he kills her accidentally. Yeah, so he was definitely trying to rape her, and then it seems apparently kind of smothered her while kind of trying to stifle her screams. Although, to the show's credit, nobody thinks that redeems him at all. No, definitely not. Um, He is definitely undoubtedly presented as horrible, you know, even if the murder part was accidental. And it turns out that Oswin's whole thing is that he essentially just was kind of with her and felt sexual desire for her as they were kind of curled up for warmth. And, uh, and like ran away into the snow so that he wouldn't mess with her with his sinful thoughts somehow. Yes, ran off. And then the reason he blames himself for his death is that he feels that, you know, she might not have died had he stayed there as opposed to being kind of driven off by his own inner sinfulness. Yeah. Poor Oswin. Yeah. And then we get to the best part of the episode. Yes. Cadfael is uh, chatting about, I believe when he starts out by chatting about the meta, the pesto. It's sort of late at night in, in Cadfael's workshop. Yes. And Olivier's comment, it turns out Cadfael is going to kind of quietly send off the children with Olivier back to their and, uncle. And he, of course, like Cadfael intuited that Olivier would be coming that night because Cadfael is omniscient. Um, obviously and so the two of them are kind of chatting about stuff they're kind of chatting and uh, he kind of asks him about his wound and the medicine and uh, the fact that they both know about this pesto and uh, Olivier starts talking about how he learned the pesto from uh, his mother his Syrian mother a woman named Miriam and you know where she hung out and how good she was at herbs and how she lived in the street of the sailmakers in Antioch and it has already been established through a sort of random conversation earlier in the episode 
that when Cadphile was a crusader in Jerusalem, he basically had a fling with a lady called Miriam who lived who in the Who taught him of, all of his fancy herbs. Who lives in the street of the sailmakers in Antioch. And so we see the dawning res, um, sort of revelation on Cadphile's face that sexy Olivier de Britannia is his long lost son. Ta-da! Yes. Whose sexiness clearly comes from his mom's side. Yeah. But, um. <laughs> but, but whose cleverness and like nobility will probably come from his mom's side too, but also bad file. Yes. And so he decides not to tell him, which is a little sad, but also you kind of get it. Yeah. He's sort of like, he's an adult now. He doesn't need this random monk being like, I'm your dad. But then he's like praying and he like, thanks God that he like has had the opportunity to see his son and his, his son is like so, so someone to be so proud of. And it's really sweet actually. And there's a bit where he's kind of vaguely referring to him to when speaking to Hugh and, uh, you know, Hugh says something like, what kind of man is he? And he says he is a son that any father would be proud of, which is very sweet. Yeah. So uh, that is as far as I have gotten in Cadfael. Although there are, I guess, uh, another, what, four seasons? There are four seasons in total? I think there are three in total. Um, I can't remember. They're, they have kind of three or four episodes a season. Yeah, there is a lot more in terms of plot. If any listeners out there want to want to watch the, want, want to watch this show, I would say those are the episodes I think are the best. But if you get hooked, like I think maybe you do. I, I would watch more uh, as a slight prelude to um, our ultimate rating, but... Yeah, so with that, let's move into uh, our next section, the Vera et Falso segment, where we talk about specifically what they got right and what they got wrong. So uh, first of all, just a quick note uh, that kind of has the, as it has as its backdrop, the civil war between uh, Maud or Matilda, who is the daughter of King Henry I of England and her cousin, Stephen of Blois, of Blois, excuse me, who ultimately basically won in that he got to be king and she did not get to be queen. But her son gets to be king and his son gets to be dead. Yes, yeah, so his son, who is unfortunately named Eustace, uh, does not make it. Which, I mean, the British monarchy really dodged a bullet there. As a po- Right, I mean, <laughs> could we have had, like, Eustace the Eighth? Could we have had eight Eust- Eustaces? Can't even say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, for for the best that we uh, we kind of dodge a bullet with uh, having a lot of British monarchs named King Eustace. So uh, Maud's son Henry uh, becomes King Henry II of England, who, by the way, is the husband of Eleanor of Aquitaine, who we have discussed on this podcast a number of times. So there, first of all, there really was a siege at Shrewsbury in 1138. The town apparently saw a flurry of consecration of chapels and cemeteries kind of in response to the war, which are recorded in the Shrewsbury Carcellary. Huh. Yeah. And also, it should be noted that there was a kind of interesting situation happening with the garrison. So the garrison, in fact, all escaped as opposed to just two of them escaping, at which point, because they'd escaped... Stephen ordered that they all be pursued and slain, and many of them, in fact, were. And so according to the reports of uh, the chronicler Orderic Vitalis, 93 were captured and hanged, which is interesting because that actually means that the show has two corpses, too many, since it has 94 and then there are actually 95. So that's something that I think overall they actually do a pretty good job with in terms of the kind of historical backdrop for that episode. I do think that overall there is some amount of at least much more than a lot of other medieval things of people taking religion somewhat seriously. 
Kadfa occasionally has rather overly modern attitudes toward things, but he does also clearly seem to be a man of faith. He clearly seems to take his oaths overall pretty seriously. Yeah, and in the person of Cadfile, you can you sort of see that there that you know for him curiosity about the world, not medical, not medical and scientific knowledge are not incompatible with the religious life, which is I think fair, which is a yeah. completely accurate way that people would have. And it's weird in the way that they make that seem so modern because. Like, yes. I mean, that there are plenty of monks that would think that being involved in the world to some degree was uh, acceptable and reasonable and a part of being a monk. Although, of course, you know, not to. I mean, that was something that was a kind of conflict within the Benedictine order. And, you know, it's the Franciscans who are ultimately much more kind of openly involved with the world. Yeah. But, and I mean, and also that nobody else in the monastery, like the prior Robert, but just in general, I think the other monks are less cool with his being involved in the world like they're not they don't have a problem with his medical knowledge which he uses you know in in his duties in the monastery but they do basically routinely have a problem with him just like piecing out from the monastery and not following orders also because of course obedience is part of one's vows and so actively disobeying orders that you are given to stop investigating a murder is not being a great monk and wandering out of a monastery is actually not something you're really supposed to be doing like you know Benedict himself of the Benedictine rule really was like hated wandering monks. Yeah, that you should be rooted in your monastery, ideally. Yeah, and like only go out on official visits. So, I mean, the ways in which Brother Gadvile is not a very good monk, I think... Are, yeah, like there's a. Re- I don't know. I think I think the mo- the mo- the monks in general are, pers- are are portrayed as pretty reasonable, even though there's kind of a. Weird... Yeah, and even the monks who are kind of unpleasant are at least not hypocritical, which I appreciate. The other thing, as you kind of touched on, is they are all generally fine with all of his medical knowledge, which I really appreciate because there is a frustrating tendency in a number of uh, medieval movies that I have seen to claim that essentially anyone related to the church thought all medical knowledge was witchcraft yeah so i appreciate that that is just it just kind of goes unremarked upon that they have a monk who is you know who has a very kind of serious knowledge of herbal medicine and that he is good at healing people also they portray the abbey as being very much involved in the world you know in the sense that it is the abbey to whom this kind of crusader guy who's looking for his two niece and nephew writes you know they kind of are involved in various dis- in the sort of handover of the town like they, yes. they are kind of pursuing their property interests in various ways and that doesn't that is not perceived as like compromising their mission which i think is also right and that is actually an important you know part, part of-, of the benedictine order in many ways is that the benedictines uh, are very invested in the fact that, first of all, they need to have funds, which often means, uh, you know, getting donations, which means often having a relationship with the people who are giving donations and other people around them in the community who are, you know, potential donors. And that, you know, once somebody makes a donation, that's not a temporary relationship with the monastery. It's not that you give a donation and then everything's done. It's that you give a donation and then the monks are expected to continue praying For you, there are kind of long-standing relationships with families over generations and a real sense that people are constantly kind of reinvesting in their relationship with a given monastery. So I do appreciate that there is some amount of the monks kind of, you know, even the monks who are not on board with Cadfa'els wandering around uh, participating in murder investigations, 
even they don't seem to question the fact that, you know, there are connections that they have with the outside world. Yeah, both in this sort of charitable way and also in this kind of participating in the life in the sort of world of the nobility. Yeah. yeah. And then just another couple kind of quick notes that I wanted to make about little things that they got right. First of all, there's a kind of brief content in the context of the Crusades. They kind of refer, I think, in the context of the leper crusader night. They say that the Fatimids uh, sent back his weapons after he supposedly died. And I appreciate that, yes, um, and I appreciate that somebody actually bothered to look up that the Fatimids were in fact the people, the uh, dynasty who were the rulers of Jerusalem at the time that it was conquered by the Crusaders in 1099. Mm -hmm. And that medieval Welsh law, as I think we mentioned briefly before, does not in fact care about legitimacy, um, that the estate cares about gender. Women apparently do not have a lot of rights, Mm -hmm. uh, but that the estate should be divided equally among all sons, both legitimate and illegitimate. Yeah. Okay. So part of the partible inheritance rather than primogeniture, which is yes. becoming more of a thing. Although that is not relevant to the episode because there's sort of only one. Yeah, son. and there aren't alternative sons anyway because a stepson has no claim at all. Right. Those are some things that I think it kind of does uh, relatively well. Any other kind of little things they get right that you want to comment on? I do kind of like that they show a fairly wide range of society that yeah. everyone who Cadfile comes across is not necessarily, like that there are a lot of nobles who are kind of involved with the monastery, but then there are also sort of other people, you know, they, they seem to yeah. show a fairly wide range of people who he is involved with, which I kind of like. Yeah, and I would say it also does a decent job of having some number of women as well as men um, because of the fact that, you know, you're kind of rooted in a monastery, which is only men. And then the sheriff is obviously also a man. The women are all kind of minor characters that are there for just kind of an episode, basically, and then go away. So there are not a lot of very kind of serious long-term female characters. But I think the ones that they have episodically are, you know, fine, at least. Yeah, and I think... Especially in the context of 90s TV, which is yes, you know, exactly a lower bar. Yeah. I, I mean, it definitely doesn't pass the Bechdel test at any point that we've seen, I don't think. No. Like, I'm genuinely not sure how that there are scenes where there's, like, two women at a time. Oh, oh no. Actually, oh, Goddard well, talks to Aline. Aline. Yes. yes. For a second. And also, I think Iveta... The um, in the leper one talks to her 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 aunt her and guardian aunt, guardian yeah. person for a second too. yeah so like a little yes obviously you know some gender related issues but uh, that it does at least I would say kind of depict a somewhat realistic range of medieval women yeah I mean. And again, especially given that they're limited by this episodic form, I think they, they miss some opportunities, which we'll talk about later, but, yes. but basically, yeah. In terms of things that they did not get quite right or actively quite wrong, the initial thing is that there are a lot of ways in which, first of all, Cadfell is a very modern person. And as well that more broadly, a lot of the things about the mystery structure seem very modern, that the kind of emphasis on uh, fears about clandestine murders and forensic evidence to solve them is not something that you see really in medieval court records. Yeah, I mean, the whole structure of the idea that it's not even almost a historical thing, because honestly, the structure of the sort of murder mystery, especially the kind of cozy British murder mystery with which we are also familiar, is also like not real life either. Like it's not actually how murder happens now either. But this whole premise that, you know, somebody dies and you have no idea who it is. um, And that the way that you solve that murder is by kind of coming up with clues that are, yeah, again, these sort of physical things and and that other people will accept these clues as 
pointing to the truth. That this right, is how but no one questions the, the fact, fact that forensic evidence uh, is ultimately the way to solve a murder, which it is not. I mean, it's really very much about witness testimony and as well things like reputation and family. Yeah, I mean, the sort of, you know, how the truth is constructed in the medieval courtroom, yeah, is very much about persons who are trustworthy vouching for other people. Yeah, um, and the, the the testimony might be a sort of means of doing that, but people are not, you know, pointing to like a stain on someone's clothing and saying, "Ha ha!" Right. Yeah. So that is one of the things that I think, and on a kind of broad level, that I'm not sure that there is a way to do a mystery series that is entirely true. That is entirely true to the way medieval people would have thought about. Murder, yeah, I think and you would have to, solving I, murders, and also kind of fits a pattern of a modern mystery. Yeah, I think this whole idea of the kind of looking for clues and the sort that kind of thing is, I think it's like a late nineteenth century and later yeah. kind of way of constructing the truth. And yeah, I think you would have had to either sacrifice that or sacrifice the Middle Ages, and clearly they chose to sacrifice the yeah. notions of truth. Yeah, that's certainly something that I think is a kind of broader issue. I have my regular knit picky art historical comments. There are a couple of kind of pervasive visual things that you see in these uh, in these episodes. The first is that the opening has this set of wood carvings, which first of all, like clearly look like they were made in the 1990s, but also to the extent that these things that are clearly made in the 1990s are imitating something medieval, it is imitating really very clearly 15th mm-hmm. century carving styles, especially that there's this kind of skeleton who's the kind of dramatic image that pops up at the end who looks very much like he escaped out of, uh, there's this um, visual painting tradition, the uh, the dance macabre or the dance of death, where that, you know, is kind of supposed to demonstrate the, you know, pervasiveness and inescapability of death. We'll all be skeletons one day. Yeah. And like, like we all are skeletons now. We all are. We don't, yes. We all will stop having other things to us one These, day. We will have, un- <laughs> we will all be uncovered skeletons one day. Yeah. Um, sometimes um, the, 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 the worms that will eat us are also, are also depicted. Yeah. And like, this dude who's like I think it's like a skeleton with a crown yeah it's a skeleton with a crown which is possibly also just like death personified yeah so he kind of looks like he escaped out of a 15th century painting there are also these really unfortunate frescoes that are in a couple of places in the abbey it's mostly the abbot's office I think yes. that's basically the only internal set they have it's like they have the yeah. church the abbot's office and like brother Cadfile's herbarium and they just kind of cycle between those yeah and these frescoes first of all once again, clearly look like somebody painted them in the 1990s, not especially well. Additionally, they look like they are 14th century Italian. They look like basically like half-assed copies of Giotto. Yeah, I think... For- like sometimes they look a bit Byzantine, actually. There's a kind of, there's a variety. I think the author of the original books made some effort to set these mysteries in a very specific time and place. And uh, the creators of the show, I think, have set it very much in the Middle Ages. In a kind of vague way, exactly. So that is part of that, is that you have these kind of odd paintings, which I find even funnier in addition to the fact that they like do not look like they would be at home at all in 12th century England. I also find it funny that these paintings that are clearly from like 200 years after the show takes place are in bad shape and kind of look like they are 600 years old. Well, because, of course, you know, everything in the Middle Ages had to look sort of old and worn and I mean, scruffy. it's something that's pretty common that you have medieval ruins in medieval movies. Yeah, because, you know, <laughs> the idea that it would have looked new then 
it just does not seem to occur to people that you kind of have to have things look like they are ruins because medieval things are in ruins now. I have to always catch myself too, is that like, you know, of course these things would not have looked that old. They would have looked new. They would have looked brightly colored, you know, you know, like all of these, uh, you know, all of these wood, all of these wood sculptures would have been brightly painted. I mean, the insides of churches that we think of as these being, being these sort of beautiful, like pure stone things would probably have been brightly painted as well. People would have chosen probably when they had the opportunity, more garish colors than we necessarily think of as the sort of cute, aesthetically pleasing. Right. I mean, the tendency to make the medieval world extremely gray is inaccurate as well as irritating. Unless, of course, your medieval world is totally peasants, which it probably would have been for most people, but is almost ne- peasant representation is pretty limited. Right. Well, I mean, sometimes you have peasants just kind of being murdered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the kind of visualization of this world is not amazing, and that's not even getting into the Renaissance hats that we uh, briefly insulted earlier. A couple then other little things to note. You see the wedding between Iveta and supposed to be Hewan, although he does not show up. And the wedding is presented as being inside the Abbey Church. This is a period where marriages typically would have been at the door of the church, Mm. in part because there are kind of complicated attitudes and that marriage is considered a sacrament. But on the other hand, it is considered something at the same time that is in some ways fundamentally profane and something that is distinct. And that, you know, marriage is something that is for the people who are in the world and distinct from the people who have dedicated themselves to the church. Well, and marriage is fundamentally about sex and property. And those are icky worldly things that the church shouldn't be involved in and was not in fact involved in for some centuries. Right. And And this is kind of the period in which they are feeling like they have to become involved in it. But, you know, this is also the period where they are, you know, this is not too long, at least after the period where they are really cracking down on, for example, priests being married, um, that they had kind of monks being married had been a kind of obvious no-no for a lot longer, but it's really only in the 11th century that they really start kind of pushing on the actually priests and bishops also are not able to be married. And at the same time that priests and a priest is necessary if lay people want to get married. Yeah. So because marriage is becoming a sacrament, the priest should be there. It should be in the vicinity of the church, but it should not be actually within the within the church itself. So you normally exchange vows at the door and then go in for your mass afterwards. Any other things that we want to bring up in terms of bits that they perhaps could have not half-assed the research? I mean... <laughs> I am so fond of this show, and also I think I keep in mind that they are working from a very imperfect text in the in the books. Yes. If we were really going to go deep, we would have reread the books, and we would be able to kind of see whose fault was what. But are not know. quite going that deep. I, I'm inclined to forgive them a lot of the they are a low budget TV series kind of situation, like right. the, like those chainmail sweaters um, and the bizarro <laughs> yeah. costumes. Um, I think, and I think the sort of basic structure of the murder mystery. You know, you just have to, well, you don't have to accept that. You can think about that and how ridiculous it is, but it's kind of baked in in a way. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, and actually the low budget probably does explain part of the costumes. I mean, they probably, like, borrowed I mean, uh, though those hats from a Renaissance fair. Yeah, like, if, yeah. And also, like, if they had an actual historical consultant, I would be shocked. Yeah. And so, and that is kind of my sense based on what we were talking about before, is that to the extent that there is kind of real serious research done, it is very much that it is the author of the books and uh, that she actually like did research and that then a decent amount of that research made it into the show. In terms of the sort of way that the episode is structured and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I think the kind of last thing to kind of particularly mention, which has, I guess, kind of bits that they got a bit right and bits that they got wrong, have to do with leprosy. And so in our next section, Historia et Veritas, where we typically talk about a real historical figure, event, or phenomenon, I'm going to turn this over to Abby, who has expertise on the subject of medieval leprosy. Oh, man. Um, So my expertise is a little bit limited. I am, to some extent, a historian of public health, and I also just taught a course on medieval medicine, during which my students were very excited about lepers. Everyone loves lepers. Everyone loves lepers. I say that I was excited about lepers. I think lepers are sort of fascinating to us, partly because it's sort of, it's this disease that has disappeared in many ways from, from at least the developed like it is still in the world Hansen's disease is still in the world but it's something that most people don't encounter that and also much. can we cure or manage it now like if you got leprosy today I'm pretty sure yeah it is um it is manageable now if I think it is it is still a serious disease in places in the world where people don't have yeah but um, if like in the U.S. Care. you somehow ended up getting leprosy and actually the most common way that people get leprosy in the U.S. is from armadillos Yes, I remember reading about that, that the armadillos in Texas or something are all ridden with leprosy. Um, Which I think is kind of crazy because leprosy is an old world disease and armadillos are a new world animal, which means they got it. So we gave them leprosy. Yeah, we gave the armadillos leprosy. It's our fault. And then now they're giving it back to us in a cute little revenge. Um, So does that mean that there's like armadillo bits that are falling off? No, actually, okay. the armadillo, the, the leprosy doesn't hurt the armadillos because oh. they die of old age before it gets after them. So leprosy is a very slow-moving disease, uh-huh. actually, and it's not actually particularly contagious. So that's something, I mean, oh, and I say leprosy, Hansen's disease, which is the sort of modern accepted medical name for what we think of as leprosy. Among medieval historians will use the term leprosy because it's the disease, it's the name that appears in the sources, of course, as is always the case, they are describing a phenomenon that they have constructed. It's not necessarily, they aren't describing it according to the same rules that we would describe a disease because right. they aren't thinking like this is caused by the bacterium, whatever. They're seeing a set of things that they're constructing as this disease, leprosy. We, in the sort of modern world, look at things and we talk about the Hansen's disease. Not everyone who was considered a leper in the Middle Ages necessarily had what we would call Hansen's disease. But as for, from what I've read, there's a pretty significant overlap. That if you sort of analyze the bones in leper cemeteries, a lot of them have lesions that would indicate that they have something like Hansen's disease. Right, so, I mean, it is relatively easy to tell from bones, I believe, if you had leprosy. Yeah, so it's a very slow-moving disease. It's considered to be hard to identify in its early stages, but you know, in its advanced stages, they do seem to have yeah. identified it. So. The other thing that's fascinating, of course, is the, you know, the way that we turn, we use leper, we use the word leper in the modern world as someone who is an outcast in society. And this is the image that we have of, of medieval lepers, that they are, you know, the living dead, that they are yeah. kind of not, they're completely excluded from society and that that is because there is a fear of contagion, that there's, yeah. that the medieval people are so afraid that they will catch leprosy that they isolate these people and keep them like in these sort of prison type situations out on outside of the town. And, you know, they walk around in rags and they have to carry the bell um, so that no one will know to come near them. That's the stereotype. And recent historians have really pushed back against this and challenged it that, in fact, leprosy has a very ambivalent image in the Middle Ages. On the one hand, people sometimes think, well, lepers are 
it's kind of like a picture of Dorian Gray situation that all their they, they, all their sins are kind of coming coming out of their body, and that this is and that they look gross on the outside because they're sinful on the inside. But there's also the possibility at the same time that they are actually blessed because they are they are experiencing purgatory in this world, so that they can purge all their sins now and go straight to heaven, and so that they are in this yeah. sort of like very blessed situation, actually. And is that something that increases with, um, I mean, the kind of practice of imitatio Christi and the idea of kind of suffering like a suffering Christ? You know, it's funny because the timing is a little, I think, doesn't is a little weird for that because so we can tr- we can't really track the number of people who have leprosy, but interest in charity for leprosy seems to really peak in the sort of high middle ages. So starting about, you know, Cadphile's time, 12th uh-huh. century. And this is when towns are growing, that people are starting to build hospitals specifically for lepers. Um, and these hospitals do tend to be built on roads outside of town. But people think now this isn't actually because they wanted to keep them out of town. It's because the lepers basically made their living by asking for charity from passersby. And so they wanted to be on the main road so that right. they would be able to ask for charity as people come in and out of the town, which is exactly what happens in Cadfile. Yes, that they are asking for charity. And then you have these terrible people who escape from the Renaissance who are refusing to be charitable to them. Right. And, and in fact, this is reasonable because it seems to be that people do actually give charity to these lepers and that people aren't freaking out about being that close to them. And... In a weird way, it's kind of brilliant that this guy escaped from the Renaissance because actually people only start getting really in this sort of exclusionary language about lepers um, and even the contagion language about lepers is actually much later than Cadphile. So starting after the Black Death, you know, later 15th, later 14th, 15th centuries, actually early 14th century too, a little bit in some places, you start to get this sort of, in general, people in town start to be afraid of anybody who is like wandering around begging. And that includes a lot of people who, mm-hmm. who are lepers. And so there's sort of, there are all these ordinances against beggars. There are all these ordinances against sort of vagabond people. And there's sort of more of a sense that like there's not enough to go around charity wise yeah. the poor are to be distrusted and there starts to be a little bit more issues with lepers and and kind of more exclusionary language being used toward lepers but in Cadvile's time lepers are primarily objects of charity um, yeah. deserving objects of charity so the fact that most of the people in this episode the people who are considered to be good give lepers Charity, that is, I think, per- perfectly reasonable. And the fact that, like, the people who don't do this are considered to be evil actually is, it's I think, not in outside line their own possibility. Sensibil- yes. sensibilities. Yeah, I think that's the only thing is that there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk in this episode about the danger of contagion from lepers. Yeah. So when we have the conversation at the end, when leper Lazarus is revealed to be the grandfather. He says, oh, when I was first, I was first diagnosed in the East by the amazing Muslim doctors who are so much better. Who know everything, yes. Which, sidebar, Islamic medicine was actually much more advanced than Latin medicine in the 12th century. But what that means is that they're kind of intellectual frameworks for talking intellectually about medicine and sort of analyzing classical texts about medicine are much more elaborate, that they have a much more elaborate intellectual structure for talking about medicine and medical writers are kind of just like better and sort of more complicated. 
and it doesn't yeah, actually mean that they like, yeah. get better clinical results because that's right. not actually really how they measure medical success. Yeah, um, I mean, this is yeah, this is something that we talked about a little bit on a previous episode, um, which is why I didn't get as much into it before. But that is the case: is that to the extent that people are doing any kind of experiential medicine. They are doing that in both the Muslim East and the Latin West and are to some extent with kind of varying success figuring things out. And uh, of course, the other thing is that some amount of the theoretical framework as well, for example, the kind of, you know, theory of the four humors, which does not necessarily work, does not work, that that is something that is coming from the Greek medical tradition and is uh, very much quite current in the Islamic world as well. Yeah, so it's common to both cultures. Um, They have a common medical framework. It's just that in the, especially, especially in the, you know, in the earlier period, basically, the Islamic world is just sort of more developed as an urban society and as a literate society and therefore is kind of further along in commenta- commenting on the Arabic texts. Right, and, and, well, and, it has on, more, it and it has more of the Greek texts because there was a whole big project to translate them into Arabic in the 9th century and they didn't really get kind of translated into Latin in the same way and until they were the, you know, until the 13th century-ish. Yeah, I mean, um, and they were just not as interested in them in the Byzantine Empire. Yeah, so... In other words, the whole trope of the Arab doctors are better. To some extent, I think they, medieval people would believe that, but that isn't that they were better in the way that we might think of doctors being better. So supposedly, this guy says, you know, the, that he was, you know, diagnosed very early with this disease, and then he says, I had, I couldn't go back because I had to protect my wife and son from contagion, which is not how people would have thought about that at that time. That is not, contagion is not, I think, something that would have been a primary. I mean, he was a crusader, not a doctor. I guess he... I mean, because he could have just been wrong about how that worked, but right, but, but that's that not... other people around him wouldn't have made him think that he was contagious and would have immediately infected his wife and child. If he yeah, I mean, I think what would have been the case is that he would not have been able to take continue his position necessarily as a nobleman. He would have ne- not necessarily, right. as his illness progressed, been able to kind of be this sort of war hero that and respected person in noble society and. I don't think it's entirely implausible that somebody with that sort of situation would have preferred to be remembered as a crusader who died in battle as opposed to as a leper grandpa. Yeah, leper grandpa is, I think, not really a role anybody's desperate to fill, even in the Middle Ages. But um, <laughs> so that's kind of a mixed bag. But interestingly, you know, so jumping back, you know, Jocelyn Lucy at some point when he's hiding from the authorities ends up hiding with this guy and wearing like a dead leper's cloak and the one time he finally takes off his ridiculous purple cloak he is not he does not show like any kind of squeamishness about wearing this dead leper's outfit and hanging out with the lepers for a while and that is actually i think much more realistic that you know people might think it's like not necessarily that much fun to hang out with people who are ill and disfi- and are disfigured in this way and that people might have some sort of issue with that but the idea that it would somehow be like so dangerous as to not be possible to approach them is is not really something Oh, I also yeah. forgot. The they, lepers do walk around with those little bells sometimes, but the bells are actually, it is now thought, to, that they can ring to attract people. So they ring the bell As opposed and everybody to keeping knows them away. that there's a leper there and they can go give alms to that person rather than keeping them away. Yeah, so um, it's an opportunity for charity, not a warning. Yeah, and basically lepers are opportunities for charity. Yeah. And, um, you know, sometimes, and everybody needs more good deeds to get them into heaven, so lepers are... Just lepers are great. Lepers are an opportunity. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, the reason that people are having, are actually kind of sponsoring leper hospitals essentially is also kind of related to the fact that there are these opportunities for charity. I yeah. Mean. Yeah. And I think, and so that the idea of the leper hospitals as being places of containment is again, you know, much later when people in the middle ages start sort of just freaking out a lot more about. Right. I mean, in this period, don't we have a sense, I believe if I'm remembering correctly, that lepers actually traveled between leper hospitals. Yeah. And they're not confined in them at all. They sort of yeah. they go out to, to get alms. They go to churches. They, yeah. They go through the same churches sometimes. I mean, they, there is a church usually with the leper hospital because they're not necessarily all mobile, but they're also they also can go to churches that other people go to. There's no yeah. problem with that. Recent research has shown over a pretty wide area that lepers are actually fairly well integrated into society, and that was not actually what research was saying at the time that this show was made. So it's right. like a little <laughs> bit of an accidental correct thing, uh-huh. there, but good for them. Yeah, um, they, they ultimately did a good job. Yeah. Our next segment, Fabula Nostra, which is where we talk about a kind of alternative version of something. And for today's, I wanted to do a slightly different version of what we usually do and talk about instead uh, perhaps episodes that we think uh, this TV series should have had uh, in addition to the ones that it actually had. Yeah, because part of the issue is, you know, is the the idea of a mystery completely incompatible with, you know, the medieval world? And, you know, right. almost. But there are yeah. some circumstances where I think it would actually make sense. Yeah, and so to some extent, I think it's more interesting to think about, okay, what other opportunities could they have had to look at the medieval world in exciting ways uh, through this format rather than... Uh, necessarily thinking about if there are ways they could have done a better job at creating a medieval mystery series. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the big thing that immediately pops up for me, because I am perennially on Jew watch is that uh, as, which is a, you know, phrase that I've taken from a different podcast, Mm -hmm. but something that I've talked about a number of times, there are a number of settings where there could and arguably should be Jews and are not Jews. So one of the things that is a kind of interesting coincidence in time is that this show, I think, actually at least more or less overlaps with, in fact, the first ritual murder accusation against Jews. So the ritual murder accusation is essentially that Jews, it starts out with just that Jews murder Christian children kind of for fun to resurrect the, or sorry, to uh, resurrect, uh, ha, funny, um, to reenact the murder of Christ, Jews' murder of Christ, so that basically they are thrilled that they murdered Jesus and want to do it again every now and then. Yeah, so the way these tend to go down is that the body of a a young child is discovered somewhere because the Middle Ages are very, very dangerous for children and they die all the time. Right. um, And so, and then somebody's like, oh, you know, what, what must have happened here is that often we are close to Easter and then, and everybody knows that, you know, the Jews in the neighborhood are clearly trying to reenact the murder of Jesus. And then it is also uh, the kind of later development of the accusation also contains the claim that Jews are also ritually using the blood of these children to make matzah. But that was not found in the earliest accusations. Yeah, and so the earliest one happens in Norwich. In 1144, which is six years after the first episode takes place. Yeah, and it is not very close. I mean, it's the other side of England, but it's still in England that this is happening. And this is kind of a phenomenon that is exported from England and starts popping up elsewhere. Yeah. And the first uh, yeah. kind of 50 years about of ritual murder accusations are all located in England or Northern France. Yeah. And the, the thing about these ritual murder accusations is both the kind of elaborate fantasy that 
that the Christians are kind of engaging in where this is, they think that this is all happening, but also that they are, what happens is they sort of essentially seize on, usually there is the, there is an actual death that is unexplained or is logical explanation is not accepted for some reason. And then this story is spun in that gap. And there are actually some cases in the Crown of Aragon, which is the area of both of our expertise, mm-hmm. where the body of a Christian child is discovered somewhere near the Jewish quarter. Somebody starts trying to get this going, and then the king shuts it down. You right. know, in other because words, he this is not very much is invested in various reasons in uh, protecting the Jewish community. Yeah, so in, in other words, this is a sort of finding the body, the mob starts get to get going, but it can actually be interrupted. And there are cases in the Middle Ages where right. like, it, it gets stopped. Right. And there are actually fewer situations than one might think where people, where Jews are actually executed mm-hmm. as a result of these accusations. So I think that could be a really interesting opportunity to kind of use this format is to have a body of a Christian child is found and uh, initially there is an accusation made against the Jew against local Jews. And actually, I didn't look up if there actually were Jews in Shrewsbury, but I'm sure they could find some. There are no um, Jews at any point, as I recall, in this mystery series, which is a real, a real right. missed opportunity there. Yeah, but I mean, I'm, I actually haven't, I actually did not check whether the actual historical town of Shrewsbury had a Jewish community or not, mm-hmm. but there are plenty, and there are enough Jewish communities in England at that point that I think you could kind of make the case for them being somewhere. So, you know, that you could have a child who was murdered, and initially there was an accusation against the Jews for having ritually murdered this child, and then it ultimately, you know, Cadpel has to save the Jews by finding who the real murderer is. Yeah, yeah. I think, so I, mean, I think that would be a good episode. I mean, I think that that is a sort of thing where the Middle Ages produces its own kind of murder mysteries. Right. I mean, of course, because that's actually one of the things that, you know, there have been a couple every now and then efforts in terms of thinking at about actually what did happen to this child. Just in general, I think the way that this show is a bit of a missed opportunity is that it doesn't, it, it's looking for the kind of murder cases that we see in modern mysteries, right? Not, yeah. You know, and actually something that we didn't talk about before is the way in which one way, one thing that is sort of not realistic is the way that very few of the murder stories are kind of very, are embedded in kind of family conflicts. You know, if you look at actual romance in the Middle Ages, you know, it is usually these things are kind of very much embedded in the dynamics of a household, embedded in sort of family dynamics, property dynamics, and sometimes political things, but that everybody is embedded in these networks of family, neighbors, fellow members of the guild, like people aren't just kind of alone. And of course, also that a lot of the time when there is something like a clandestine murder, a lot of the time the assumption is that it is in a kind of domestic context. And I don't, I don't know if To be fair, that's also true now. And then, well, yeah, like, I mean, this is just a thing where like, these kind of cozy murder mystery where like all murders are like weirdly elaborate and done by wealthy white people in the countryside is right as a as opposed to i think it's actually interesting that there are a number of women in particular who are not accused of murder yeah especially in case in the you know the kind of poisoning episode it actually in some ways uh was surprising to me that there was not a woman murderer because poison is stereotypically in the medieval world considered women's weapon because they're sneaky and don't have swords well and because they control access to food yeah for the most part and so i think a very rational immediate explanation in the medieval world and honestly probably now and in real life would have been that it was the servant or the wife 
Yeah, I'm, I'm actually surprised that they never suspected the wife because she presumably had an effort to say, like, was trying to safeguard her son's inheritance too. Right. Uh, yeah, there's, I think, not, yeah, there's not as much suspicion cast on women in these particular ones as. Yeah, as, as in the Middle Ages. And, you know, also, hey, equality. Women can murder people too. Yeah, women can murder. <laughs> women in the Middle Ages probably had more reason than many. To yeah. Murder. Can't blame. Them. I mean, you can, but yeah. I won't. <laughs> Um, another kind of built-in mystery that the Middle Ages produces for us um, is the process of determining whether or not someone was a saint. Yeah. Um, so this is something that is structured very much like a trial that, you know, we think of medieval people as just kind of being ready to believe anybody was a saint at the drop of a hat. And that's not true. You know, you saints exist, but that doesn't mean everybody who says they were a saint was a saint. Right, and um, canonization inquests, which are determining if people are a saint, are probably the closest that we have in the Middle Ages to something involving a kind of forensic evidence in terms of the interrogation of miracles and to what extent they should really be considered miracles. Yeah, and sort of taking kind of physical clues and really kind of trying to get to the bottom of something. So we were hypothesizing that perhaps a murder that took place in the context of someone, you know, being, say, a local holy person is widely regarded as, as a saint and then dies under mysterious circumstances and they have to determine yes. the circumstances of the death but also in the context of trying to determine is this person in fact a saint um, right and that that could be interesting to have actually Cadfell simultaneously dealing with worrying about forensic evidence surrounding the murder and also if there are people at the same time who are starting to claim that they um, have been miraculously healed at the tomb of this person yeah and especially because in in a context like that his institution the Abbey of Shrewsbury would he would be facing a lot of pressures because yes. you know whoever controls the body of a saint is right basically has a lot of extra points both in terms of potential wealth and potential prestige but on the other hand you don't want the scandal of someone turning out not to be a saint right um, and i think it could also be interesting in terms of getting perhaps a slightly more a slightly richer sense of the conflicts internal to the monastery yeah which, and that there really seem to be essentially like cadfael and then people who don't care and then jerome and brother Pryor who are mean yeah um, in the in the novels i think there's a little bit more there are more characters that kind of get like yeah. fleshed out but I also I mean the real episode that I want is the episode where Jerome finally admits to his deep love for brother for brother Pryor and gets Pos probably gets rejected because I think Prior Robert is not really that into it. No, but I'm sure Cadfael would be very understanding about it because of his time in the Muslim East. Yeah, like I, I would be totally there for an episode that sort of has brother Jerome's development as a character. Yeah, good old brother Jerome. I think this was actually a lot of fun watching these episodes, which takes us into our next section, Estimatio, in which we provide a rating. I would say that on a kind of one to five scale, which is what we usually do, I would give this a four. I thought it was really enjoyable. I think there are a lot of ways in which it does an interesting job in kind of using the medieval setting. And there are a lot of things I think that it does do well. The thing for me that kind of holds it back from being a five is that I think it does rely on a lot of assumptions about uh, the medieval world or, or kind of modernity intruding in the medieval world, mm -hmm. with in particular, of course, Cad Val being that kind of big character, that it would be nice if one could see more of people who are rational, but perhaps rational in a way that seems a bit more true to the rationality of medieval people as opposed to the way modern people are, quote, rational. 
Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways a lot of what they get right is a little bit accidental. Yeah. Um, but still interesting. I mean, I couldn't possibly give it a lower rating than that because yeah. it is part of the reason I became a medievalist. Yeah, so what rating would you give it? Because we are not obligated to provide the same rating. I mean, it's so hard, right? Because, the, you know, this is a very, like, emotional touchstone for me. And in that sense, I feel like I have to give it a five. But, like, objectively, it's not a five. <laughs> Like, so I think, yeah. I think four seems about right, honestly. Yeah. But yeah, no, it was, uh, you know, it's a lot of fun. I think I am going to watch the other episodes. And thank you for introducing me to it. Oh, well, thank and... you for watching it with me. I haven't, like, there aren't that many people in the world who would watch a show about a monk from the 90s with me. <laughs> um, just because I say it's, it's a great, cool. <laughs> It's a great benefit of having medievalist friends. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's pretty great. Yeah. Abby, are there places where people could find you on the internet? Honestly, probably not. Okay. <laughs> not all of us are findable on the internet. I am not much on the internet. Okay. Well, you can, however, find this podcast in a number of spots on the internet. First of all, if you have enjoyed us, uh, this podcast, please do rate and review us on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcatcher app. It helps other people who are interested in the medieval world and its representation in modern media find us. If you have any questions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. That's M-E-D-I-A dot E-V-A-L-P-O-D at gmail.com. And please also follow us on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group, which is a community in which we talk about further kind of in, uh, instances in terms of the representation of the medieval world in media. Oh, that's a place I'm on the internet. Yes, and Abby, you can find Abby in the Facebook group. And yeah, it's a kind of place to continue our uh, conversations that we've had here on this podcast. And of course, you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah Ifdecker. Thank you for listening to Media Evil, and I'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. First, answer this question, Edwin, and then we can talk. Brother Catfile will be cast out from the Abbey for this continued disobedience. I was called to attend the dead man, and I am here now to demand justice for him. Yeah.